Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me today is Josh Tosterson, who's president of Everland. And we're in Stockholm, where Everland have launched their new forest plan. Welcome back to the podcast, Josh. Thank you so much, Ian. It's great to be together. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. So we're here in Stockholm. We've been having some events around the UN Environment Programme's World Environment Day for 2022. And you've just launched Everland's Forest Plan. What is this plan and what's its ambition? The Forest Plan, what is it? It is the response of our organisation to the commitment that has been made by over 140 of the world's leaders at the COP26 to end deforestation by 2030. That itself is a recognition of the fact that we are going to be unable to achieve the ambitions set forth in the Paris Climate Accords without ending deforestation within that same time period. It's a strong scientific consensus. The only problem is that there's not a clear plan to achieve this. And so what the Forest Plan aims to do is to chart a roadmap for how we can end deforestation. And it charts out the role of our organization in in making a meaningful contribution to that. So what's the strategy then? The Forest Plan is based on a recognition that there's a real bright spot here in the fight to end deforestation. It starts with the recognition that forest loss is driven by economics, by the needs of hundreds of millions of people living in and around the forests of the world to achieve basic needs and chart a path to prosperity. Absent any alternatives, the value of the forest for these people is going to be cut down and used for subsistence agriculture or logging, commodity crops, and so forth. There's a mechanism, and it's one that's been working for well over a decade now, and it's based on the United Nations reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, Red Plus. It's a voluntary market expression of that, project-based, market-based, Red Plus. Red Plus programs, community-centered, wildlife-centric Red programs have been generating hundreds of millions of tons of emissions reductions over this period of time, over the decade, while generating transformative benefits to communities all over the world. And so our plan really takes as its point of departure the proven successes of this model at reducing deforestation by transforming the economic relationship and the social relationship between people and forests and scaling that model to its fullest expression. So what exactly defines or what is a Red Plus project? Red Plus projects are initiatives that are undertaken in partnership between different configurations of specialized project developers like large, well-known international NGOs and conservation enterprises in partnership with local communities living in landscapes and in partnership with governments, both at regional, local, and national level. And these consortia decide together to begin a multi-decadal initiative to end deforestation in that landscape. That's the beginning part of a RED project. And together they collaborate to design and implement activities in the landscape that address the drivers of deforestation within that landscape and arrange for activities along with local communities that are aimed at generating basic needs and prosperity for those communities in a manner that is consistent with their own aspirations. And through those programs of work, deforestation is reduced against the baseline. And we can talk about that a little bit more as we get further into this conversation. And as those projects 
are successful at reducing deforestation against their baseline, they can sell the verified emissions reductions that are generated to companies that are seeking to undertake the highest impact actions that they can for the benefit of the climate and biodiversity. And through those resources, they're able to finance over a long-term basis their agendas of work. What's the potential scalability of uh, Red Plus then? We believe Red Plus can scale ultimately to protect an area of forest that's 17% or even more of what is projected to be the forest loss in some of the most important countries around the world um, for forests such as Brazil, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Indonesia, Cambodia, Papua New Guinea, and so forth. So we believe that the project-based Red Plus modality can make a very meaningful contribution to ending deforestation in these most highly threatened landscapes around the world. So if Red Plus can prevent 17% of forest loss, what about the other 83%? Yeah, it's the glass 17% full or 83% empty. And it's really the question of the relationship between Red Plus and other project-based Red Plus and other modes of intervention. We believe, and the Forest Plan sort of expresses this belief, that jurisdictional programs, particularly national scale programs, are going to be necessary if we're going to tackle deforestation at full scale. And we believe that those programs have yet to really demonstrate yet their effectiveness, whereas project-based RED has shown itself to be quite effective. And so we believe that the path to achieving that kind of scale, Ian, is through an integration or synthesis of jurisdictional scale programs that are overseen by countries and project-based expressions that really land interventions in the landscapes where forest loss is actually happening. Who all needs to be on board to achieve this then? You need the governments of forest nations to commit to putting forward what we call jurisdictional nested programs. This means Red Plus programs that are operated through government policy at a national level, which also enable projects of the sort that I've mentioned earlier to take place within the framework, the accounting framework, the administrative framework, the policy framework of those national programs. And there's a number of countries that have begun to do this, both at national and at provincial level. Democratic Republic of Congo, Colombia, Cambodia are just some of the leaders who have kind of gone out ahead um, to begin developing these jurisdictional nested programs. So government's a really, really essential piece of this. Project-based Red Plus has attracted some criticisms. Let's address some of those now. The issue of leakage where deforestation just moves outside a project boundary, how can that be addressed? I think one of the ways that this is addressed is, again, going back to the point of jurisdictional nested programs. When you contain your overall carbon accounting at the scale of the jurisdiction of the nation, then the possibility of leakage at a project level is more or less eliminated. I will say on the other hand, though, Ian, and it's important really to point out, is that high quality standards that govern voluntary market Red Plus currently, such as the verified carbon standard of, of Veras, they address leakage quite clearly in the standard. Leakage actually is monitored in defined leakage belts, and any emissions that take place within the leakage belt are, are counted against the net emissions reductions that are generated by a project. 
leakage is already explicitly addressed quantitatively within the framework of existing standards. So it's to recognize the possibility that it takes place on the one hand and also to acknowledge that it is addressed in a direct way already. There's another aspect of leakage that I think isn't talked about, which is just worth pointing out, which is that conservation benefits, the benefits of improved livelihoods um, and of changing relationships between people and forests, there's a positive leakage that can happen within landscapes as well. And I think it's just worth pointing that out because we've seen some examples of that in some of the projects where we work in. Anyway, you asked a question about the criticism, and this is how they're addressed both within the framework of the existing standards and in the framework of new program designs, such as the nested jurisdictional programs that I mentioned. So baselines, we talked about them already. Clearly getting them right is very important. How are baselines best established? This is another question that I think actually merits its own special conversation because of its importance. And I think also because of the strength of, I dare say, emotion behind it, as opposed to the strength of the data that's actually behind, especially the critique. So on the subject of baselines, a baseline is a counterfactual scenario. So it, it's an expression of, by definition, what's not going to happen in the area that you're creating the baseline scenario for. Why is it not going to happen? Is because you're having the project intervention. The ability to assess a good baseline, good being defined as the correspondence of the baseline to reality, is something that from a methodological standpoint is tricky to actually assess. It's my own belief personally that there is not necessarily a priori a better or a worse way to create a baseline, at least not on the basis of the definition of good that I've mentioned. What is happening now as it relates to baselines is a movement to create baselines no longer in the future on the basis of a scenario of what most likely would be taking place without the project. And these are bottom-up scenarios that are constructed by an understanding of the dynamics and the landscape. Is this an area that is receiving a lot of in-migration from people who want to grow coffee um, because it's favorable, because this is an area of forest that's a little bit upslope, right? And so you have in-migration. It's an example of the kind of scenario from observed situations on the ground that might lead to the creation of a baseline, a quantitative baseline projection through modeling. The way things are going now, and it's in line with the movement to jurisdictional programs and nested programs, is to create baselines in the following way by looking at the trends of forest loss in the wider landscape, so at, say, at the level of the country, and then to create risk maps, maps that kind of show you where the hotspots of deforestation have been, and to assess, basically to look at what you think are the highest risk areas for future deforestation. And so what they'll then do is allocate the national projected forest loss proportionally to the hotspot areas where projected future deforestation is thought to be most likely to happen based on past trends. So it's just a different way to approach it. And it has different design objectives than a bottom-up scenario-driven baseline. It's actually unclear currently what is, quote, better. But the latter approach lends itself to integration within jurisdictional nested programs. And that is the direction in which baseline setting is going to be going in the future for, for voluntary programs. 
How can emissions reductions credits purchased by companies from a project basis best be nested into national policies and targets to avoid something else? It's a thrown sometimes at a project-based um, red plus in terms of double counting of the emission reductions. How can that be avoided? Well, first of all, there's no possibility of the double counting of a voluntary credit into the UN FCCC system. It's not possible to do it. It can't be done. They're in completely different accounting systems. So there's never going to be a double counting of an emission reduction. It's not going to happen. To the first part of your question, however, in nested programs, such as the ones that are being developed in Cambodia and in other places, those programs will enable the emissions reductions that are being generated at a project level to qualify either for voluntary market credits or for compliance credits should those compliance markets actually come into being under Article 6. And that gives the governments of forest nations the flexibility to draw on the compliance markets, government to government, or on the private market for whatever they think is going to be the best value that they can obtain for their successful efforts to reduce emissions. That is really the great value of these programs for governments. It gives them flexibility to go in whatever direction works the best for them to monetize the benefits of the ecosystem services that they are preserving for the benefit of humanity. And that was part of the changes or the developments that came out of COP26, the so-called Article 6, where the definitions and how the carbon markets were going to work in the future were finally agreed. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, and a lot of details still to come. So we're indicatively, the blueprint is there, but there's a lot of work still ahead. For those who, who are kind of critical of the voluntary carbon markets at this time, I think it's always important to remind ourselves that the goal of the world is to end deforestation within this decade. And why? It's because you have no chance of achieving the climate stabilization targets set forth in the Paris Accords without doing so, without eliminating deforestation. And so, you know, the, the, the track record of public sector programs like this moving at this kind of speed, it's not there. On the other hand, what is the case is that the markets have recognized this need to end deforestation as an imperative for humanity, and they're putting the financial resources behind programs of work, Voluntary Red Plus, to actually achieve that. While these kinds of programmatic details are worked out in conference rooms in the North, real money is flowing to communities to actually end deforestation in the Global South now. And it's our own view that this is work that needs to be accelerated not hindered. And that's the value of the voluntary markets today. They are responding at the scale and with the speed that's necessary to actually tackle the problem. Voluntary carbon markets are booming and there's now an unprecedented level of potential carbon finance available to fund Red Plus projects. What's the best way to take advantage of this fantastic opportunity? <laughs> well, our forest plan, when you reduce it to its essence, Develop more projects with the best consortia of developers, communities, and governments, and to engage more buyers of verified emissions reductions to support those projects. It's a pretty simple formula. Develop great projects, support the great projects in the marketplace. That's it. We have proven developers. We have proven projects. We have a path to growth that is based on a foundation of science-based standards and repeated third-party audits by independent auditors. So build on that. Do more of it.
It's really simple. I like it. Do more of this better. Yeah, that, well, that is exactly a simple approach, but it's a one that can work. Okay, what will constitute success then over the coming years? What are the milestones are you, you're going to be looking for? Again, back to simplicity, at least for us in the forest plan, we've got a time-bound action plan. And our goal is to successfully facilitate the development of 75 new Red Plus projects with our current developer partners and new ones that we'll bring on board over time in partnership with us. We've got a growth plan to get to 75 projects by 2030. And you know, the program's already been launched with a path-breaking $2 billion commitment, financing commitment from Hartree Partners to provide the financing for a new portfolio of over 20 new projects to be led by premier Red Plus project developer in the world, Wildlife Works. So we're already starting with tremendous momentum to this. So we've got transparent reporting in the forest plan on our milestones and our key performance indicators, not just on the growth at the level of the number of projects, but also the achievements that they're making for the communities, for the impacts that they're generating. So we're going to be monitoring them as we do with all of our current projects, how they're doing with respect to delivering health and well-being to local communities through water and sanitation and food security, um, women's empowerment, economic development, education, forest governments, land tenure rights, community benefit sharing, all of these things are transparently monitored and reported on. And we have targets that we set forth for each one of these areas in the forest plan. So that's what success is going to look like and keep checking in with us each year because we're going to be providing annual reports and issuing them out for engagement with our stakeholders. Well, Josh, it's certainly highly ambitious. Obviously, there are lots of things that have to fall into place, but ambition is required if deforestation is to be halted. I look forward to finding out more about your success over the coming years. But for now, Josh Sosten, President of Everland, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ian. <laughs>